Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Hey, everybody. Uh, Happy 4th of July. It is Americans Independence Day uh, and welcome to Big Glenn Radio's Military Monday show today. Well, we are airing this on July 4th, 2022, and it happens to be Military Monday show. Right. And when it's Military Monday, then you know that we're talking with Mike Guardia, who is an award winning author, a military historian, a teacher, educator, and U.S. Army veteran, and we love our shows with Mike. He's written over 20 books. I think it's 21, but he's on to the next one. It's coming out in the fall, and he's also named the Author of the Year uh, in 2021 by the Military Writers Society of America. His latest book is The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II. Now, you can get that on Amazon, all those great places. You can go to MikeGordia.com. Uh, and check out his entire library because he really does have a library. But on top of that, watch on the History Channel. Go watch the reruns as they start to air and also go on their website because he's also part of the History Channel series, I Was There. He was a historian featured in the different episodes about Johnstone Flood of 1889, the Chernobyl disaster, the Battle of Stalingrad, and the Oklahoma City bombing. And hopefully that will get another run, like a new season, so we can see Mike in there again, because he kicked butt in it. But welcome back. Welcome back, Military Mike. How are you? Hey, ladies. I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, it's good to have you on. And we're talking 4th of July, right? So a lot of us just though, let's let's have fireworks. Let's eat burgers and hot dogs, have watermelon and all those, you know, let's what can we do on our, our <laughs> food for blue, red, white and blue, right? But it kind of, you know, it's good that we have a party. And I know there was traditions way back when George Washington gave his soldiers extra rum, like on the 4th of July. There's all these old traditions. But if we really look back, um, this was a big deal because this was kind of like the independence of a country that um, the British decided to land and take over. Right. And then, you know, the British said no to the British. Right. It's kind of like. The, the country turned it on itself twice in a way, like the British country, I should say. <laughs> right. Yeah, it uh, really was an anomaly in history because uh, you didn't have many data points that you could say, you know, uh, well, hey, here is a colony that is rebelling against the mother country and trying to form its own government. You know, uh, stuff like that uh, was not common throughout the entirety of world history. So we were really blazing trails as we went along there. And uh, not only that, to try and get on paper a form of government that we uh, that mm. we thought would recognize the universal rights of mankind as we knew them and uh, to say, OK, well, how do we how do we have it both ways? Is there a way that we can balance order with individual liberty? And, uh, you know, we were, I think, blessed to have some of the smartest minds in the world at that time. Uh, sit down, create the Constitution, create a form of government that had branches governed by the concept of checks and balances and whatnot. And uh, yeah, the uh, American experiment has been working for uh, in excess of 200 years now, and uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're still going strong. Granted, we're not perfect. We have hell hiccups no. now and again. <laughs> but, Sorry, uh, I just had yeah, to do the hell yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Granted, well, we're thanks. not perfect, but pound for pound, uh, the uh, quality of life and the uh, the uh, the uh, accountability mechanisms that we have to keep our government in check are much better here than they are in many other places of the world. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and Nancy and, and I can test that. We're still, we're still, yeah, having lived in several other countries where uh, sometimes your freedoms come up close and personal, like yeah. when your passport's taken away, which. 
I had my passport taken away in an African country. And that was a real like, whoa. And then like, you know, panic. But then now what? And then nothing happened for a year and a half where I couldn't leave the country. So I had to find out how to make a living in that country. So I can speak well to the um, importance of your American heritage, the importance of your passport, the importance to um, your freedoms. Freedom of Uh, speech. Yeah. Well, well, sometimes that gets you into trouble in my case, but (laughs) yeah, but you know, the importance of um, like, you know, you don't take your passport for granted when you travel out. I'm not saying don't travel, Uh but it was a real eye opener because I never thought that that could happen. Mm. And it happened in a very, not like a military, I'm taking your passport because you did something wrong. Somebody said, I'm take, I'll be right back. I'm going to get this stamp for you. And they never came back. Mm. They just, that was that. And I didn't realize that I was supposed to offer a bribe something as simple as ten dollars yeah i didn't because i wasn't used to bribing people like because in this country you don't bribe people unless you're talking politicians and hundreds of thousands of dollars over there that somebody was waiting for what they call chai tea money 10 bucks Mm. i didn't know that so i didn't know to oh here's 10 bucks now in this country you call a 1-800 number or you go on the internet now that we have the internet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's a little different. And I think those well, are just... So that's, many that's, years that's, ago. Well, listen, a passport is a big deal. And, mm-hmm. you know, being stuck in a country is a big deal. Yeah. And when you are stuck in a country that works differently than what you're used to, you learn mm-hmm. what America has. And Mike, yeah. I know with, with your military career, you know, like, I mean... Do you have to take your passport or did the military take care of your passport stuff? Like what happens with that? Actually, I've never thought of that. What happens uh, with, with uh, yeah. If, well, if you're going overseas to any place like, uh, you know, if you're going anywhere overseas as a military member, from what I understand, and this could be different, but uh, there's no passport required because you're part of a military yeah. expeditionary force. Now, mm. that, that that could be completely out of date now, but uh, yeah. Um, but it, it, uh, going back to what Nancy was touching on, um, yeah, you know, uh, things with, uh, you know, things with passport um, fraud and, you know, mm. uh, all the shady dealings going on within there, you know, it underscores comparatively just how easy it is to get into America and and how easy it is to uh, find legal pathways to residency and uh, and citizenship because you know if you uh, if you take a look at the tiered process of what it takes to get into this country and more to the point you know the uh, requirements for citizenship I mean you easily have uh, you know you have uh, steps and processes that are qualitatively 50% less than what it is to get into another country. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at Australia. You, know, you have to be a millionaire. You have right. to be a millionaire if you want to go to oh, Australia. Yeah. Right. It's and, not that know. easy. And yeah, I think you bring up a really good point, Mike, because everybody's true. having this big political drama over it. And yeah, you want to, I mean, I did, feel for. Hey, at the outset, we said, bring me your tired, your weak. Remember back then? Yeah. That's what the Lady of Liberty said. Yeah, but I think it's it's an interesting time now because when you, I'm going to go, like if you look at the British that first came here, in a weird way, they were refugees in a weird way because they were not happy at home for right. religious freedom. And yeah. they didn't feel like they weren't being represented, so they bailed. And when you think, you know, refugees now, they're really, le- they're fleeing really bad stuff, or they can't make, you know, ends meet in a country for their kids. Or, you know, there's climate change that is pushing the refugee situation around this country, around the world. 
around it's an it's an international thing and you know i think i we i don't want to get into political discussion on it but we are doing a little bit better than like you can't just go to certain countries you can't just go to new zealand because they're a little island they can't they're not going to let you do certain things and we do have a pathway um for people like you're saying to become citizens and it's not easy actually the people that do you have to learn your history in fact i think people that become citizens in this country sometimes know more about american history than americans born here i'm just gonna say that what do you think mike (laughs) you're a teacher (laughs) you know i i wonder about that you know it's um because you have to really know your history you have to learn about it you have to learn all those things and then you know I wonder about the rest of our country if they've been learning it, you know? Yeah, well, not too long ago, I I got my hands on a copy of an actual citizenship test. And a lot of the Ah. history uh, that was being asked of any one of the applicants uh, is pretty basic stuff. You know, they want to know, like, who was the first president of the United States? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what colors are on the American flag? How many stars there are? Uh, you know, things that uh, I think any uh, things that I think any basic grade schooler would know, you know, like um, like when is the supposed birthday of the country? Hey, it was July 4th, 1776. Um, nothing that's uh, nothing that's extraordinarily hard. But when you compare that to a lot of the um, a lot of the red tape that you have to go through in order to become a citizen of Australia per se, or, you know, even, or let's take an even smaller example. Let's take one of our neighbors in the Caribbean. If you mm. want to be a citizen in the Bahamas, the oh, only okay. way to, yeah, the only way to do that. Yeah. The only way to do that is to marry a Bahamian yes. citizen. Exactly. You, know, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I, I could, I could have the cleanest record. I could have stable credit history. I mean, mm-hmm. I could be a I can be a pillar of any community that I've lived in in the U.S. And if I want to go to Nassau and mm-hmm. I want to say, yeah, hey, I want to become a Bahamian citizen, they're going to say, hey, sorry, Charlie, we can let you be a legal resident, which mm-hmm. means you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to pay these fees and you're going to have to uh, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to renew your residency status uh, every so often. But the only way for you to become a citizen is you have to marry into it. yeah and yeah and i'm thinking Mm -hmm. okay you know this is the bahamas these are the bahamian islands you know it's it's supposed to be chill man yeah it's supposed to be like really chill and laid back bahama mamas right you know but uh, yeah but i i kind of understand that because i mean how many countries are um okay everybody can go in and out at will and claim citizenship and do whatever they are going to do under the name of I'm a USA citizen or mm. I'm a citizen of France. And, you know, I mean, I'm a citizen of the world, but I think this um, is a good point. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Just because, you know, not everybody acts in a nice way and does really good things. So, Countries have to be careful of who they're letting in. And, um, you know, jails are full of people who... Everything's changing so fast. It's changing so fast, Well, no, but I mean, jails are full of people who did stuff in foreign countries and then they can't get out. And they're like, gee, I didn't know that was against the law over here. Yeah. In in silly things, you know, um, things that you can do here, you can't do in Kenya or South Africa, or yeah. they probably could do it in England, but anyway. I, don't know. I don't know. But no, but I think, our country, I think our country, I mean, there is a freedom. People come here for the American dream. And then uh, right now we're all going, what is the American dream? Where are we going? You know, there's, there's, and I think there's always a cycle in countries where you have to have the bickering to move forward. And I think when we look back to the revolutionary war, and even the 4th of July, when they started the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence, there was some bickering on that. The Revolutionary War, there were people like, yeah, we're not, we're not happy, but they weren't on board until things got really bad, right? So it took yeah. it takes people time to get a whiff of what needs to happen. Let's put it that way. Well, it, it took it a group of really um, dedicated 
irate people who really put their lives on the line. Those guys, the, the people who wrote the you know Declaration of Independence put their lives on the line. You know, mm-hmm. and that's not what everybody does every day. Mm. You know? Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. So think about that. Military Mike, when you look back on, you know, the Revolutionary War, the 4th of July, here we have this Declaration of Independence, which really we won the war. Was it 2nd of July? I I was reading on on the History Channel today that John Adams wanted it to be July 2nd, not the 4th. But I still I still trip out that him and Thomas Jefferson died on the 4th of July. I mean, that was crazy. I know. Isn't Isn't that wild? Um, (laughs) It's still weird. It's just like. That was just, that's some weird divine stuff that happened there to me. Yeah. Um, But like, what would you say about them in the past that, you know, the Revolutionary War, you know, coming to the independence, you know, let's write this declaration, let's make this happen. Those guys Mm -hmm. made some sacrifices. And I am going to say this, a lot of women are pissy because we got excluded, but those were the right. times at that time, and that and it sucks, yeah, but that's, you can make progress. It, it, yeah, it sucks, but that is what it was like. Right. Um, and we need—I <laughs> don't want to go into anything on that now. But <laughs> anyway, let's 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 start that. But um, let, let's look at those men. Mm-hmm. These guys were not just right. They were. Let's put it this way: these weren't just paper stuffers. Correct. You know. Like when we talk about Nancy and, you know, you and I have talked about this on every show. Leaders mm-hmm. should have had some kind of community experience, uh, civil certain duty, led in the military, been in the military, mm-hmm. something of that nature. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as president, you know. And when we look at those who were part of the Declaration of Independence, didn't weren't some of those guys like actual military heroes and just really put their life out there? For what they believed in. Yeah. Absolutely, they were, you know, and uh, I I think it's remarkable that so many of them knew exactly what was at stake and they all had a vested interest in the outcome of what they knew was going to be a big conflict ahead, you know, Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were a lot of people um, throughout every level of the colonial government who were veterans of the French and Indian War, and uh, they Mm. had... uh, they had experienced the hardships of war firsthand while mm. fighting in both the French and the Indians in the wild frontier. And so they not only brought um, they not only brought that service ethic to the table when the American Revolution kicked off, they brought a lot of tactical experience and they were very skilled in the ways of war that would definitely help them win the revolution against a British army that was still lockstep in the conventional way of thinking that was geared towards the plains of Europe. But to dig a little bit deeper mm. into, uh, you know, just how, how uh, they conceptualize the whole service ethic and the whole service mentality, if I can break it down by the numbers, uh, you really mm. see just how far they were willing to go and what sacrifices they were willing to make in the name of freedom. So if we take a look at the pure numbers, we have 56 patriots who signed the Declaration of Independence. And of those 56, here is the fate of those 56 men um, by the numbers and what they did and what their sacrifices were. So of that 56, five of them were captured and literally tortured to death by the British. Okay. Of that 56, 12 had their homes ransacked and burned to the ground. Two of them lost sons in the war. One of the signatories had two sons who were captured and nine of those 56 patriots, nine of them fought and died from wounds that they had Mm. sustained during the war. And uh, there are three names that really stand out to me. Okay. Uh, Three names that are actually uh, quite well known um, throughout the, uh, throughout the history of the revolution. 
you had Carter Braxton of Virginia. Uh, Carter Braxton, who was a wealthy planter and a trader. Uh, this guy was one of the heavyweights in the agricultural industry in Virginia. Uh, well, for as wealthy as he was, he saw his entire merchant fleet swept from the seas by the British Navy. I mean, the Royal oh. Navy, either uh, they either sank or impressed a number of his ships. So uh, Carter Braxton, he had to sell his home to pay off his debts, and he oh. died in rags. Okay. Oh my and, God. Yeah. And let's take another man. Dang, who, dude, who, seriously. Yeah. When are you going to write the combat diaries book on these guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of prior historians have beaten me to it. But, I know, uh, but you yeah, know what I mean. Yeah. But I, I, I would, I would love to take a stab at it. Um, hmm. So then, yeah. So then you also had Thomas McKean, uh, Thomas McKean, who was a signature to the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, you know, he uh, he was so hounded and so pursued by the British that uh, he had to move his home and his family several times throughout the year. Uh, you know, he served in Congress for years without pay. And Thomas McKean uh, actually died in poverty. But, uh, but you know, one of the uh, one of the most tragic stories, I think, actually comes from Thomas Nelson. Um, Thomas Nelson's home, I mean, the home that he built from the ground floor up, uh, was seized by the British at the Battle of Yorktown, and it was used as a British command post. Oh, now, um, now, 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 despite the fact that this is his home, I mean, he turned the house into a home. That's where he raised his family. That's where he made so many long-lasting memories. Despite the fact that it was his home, the fact that it was being used as a command post urged him to beg General Washington to open fire on it. And uh, Washington was incredibly reluctant at first. He said, Tom, Tom, what I saw you build that home from the ground floor up. I, I, I really don't want to open fire on it and destroy the place where I saw you raise your children. OK, Tom, are you sure you want me to do this? And he said, General, open fire on the house. Wow. And Washington says, wow. OK, Tom, I'm going to ask you one more time. Are you sure you really want me to do this? And uh. Tom says, General, level it. And, you know, uh, George quite reluctantly says, OK, he levels all of the uh, he levels all the gun tubes of his howitzers and and mm. the home was destroyed. And Nelson watched that home burn down to the ground. But he told himself in the back of his mind, hey, it's worth it for the cause. And to add insult to injury, Nelson died penniless. I mean, he was bankrupt with zero. Yeah. In the bank. And, uh, you know, these were all of the sacrifices that uh, these 56 signatories were willing to make. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've relayed a lot of these statistics to the students in some of the college level classes that I've taught. Mm. And I tell every one of my students, hey, look me in the eye and tell me if there is a politician mm. today who would be willing oh. to make any <laughs> level of sacrifices. Exactly. Well, that's a, no, that's a, oh even my like, gosh. you know, no, even I, I think about our, our audience listening to the beginning of our conversation about mm. like what's going on now and you know, refugees and all of this kind of stuff. And we actually really, you're really right. Yeah. Look at the, the valor. I mean, the bravery, the, the chutzpah. I, well, commitment. I, can I go back to the cojones? No, but the, commitment, <laughs> the commitment to the idea it of is, freedom. Yes. And this is the thing. So yeah. let's go back to those who serve, Mike, right? Uh-huh. You know that. You right. write about them, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're in it yourself, you know. So those who go out to serve right, and make that choice, different than being drafted, I think. And even being drafted, once you're of in, course. you're in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when people choose to go, I'm going, you know, that's your choice. You know that your life is on the line. And you've right. made a choice that I'm going to do this, even if it means death, torture, right? Right. Prisoner of yeah. war. And mm-hmm. I think this is the epitome of why we all do what we're doing, is to let people know people really, really make these sacrifices. And back then, this country was built on sacrifice. However, I want to just say, Native Americans were here first, right? So, like, we also trashed their land. So, can I just say that? Can I? Because I got to just say they were here first. And so, this is, we're talking about the independence because of the British. Uh, so, Mike, I just have to say that. I'm sorry, but our Native well, American no. brothers and sisters, this was their. 
property. You know what I mean? They were here first. But then there's also the fact that Native Americans migrated from place to place and ended up where they they, were still here. yeah. 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 So, I mean, everybody was migrating according to weather and food sources. That's, yeah, well, that that is how the world worked until well, we started building homes and being able to somewhat control the environment. Yeah. Well, well, one thing that I I wish we had done differently, and you know, this is probably just my um, but let's see, what's the term I want to use for it? Uh Okay, for lack of a better term that comes to my mind straight away, um, pie in the sky thinking. But one thing that I wish we had done differently was um, integrate more and mix more with the Native Americans. Because mm-hmm. when I look at now, now, um, not that I'm going to uh, draw a lot of inspiration for things that have happened in Latin America, but one thing that I do admire about uh, what I've seen in places like Brazil or, you know, uh, any number of Latin American countries is that uh, the uh, the whites, the Native Americans, and even the African uh, slaves uh, or African immigrants, uh, they all mixed with each other. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you had uh, you had uh, you know you had whites who were marrying natives, you had natives who were marrying uh, blacks. You know, there was a uh, there was a lot of um, I, I, there was a for lack of a better term, there was just a lot of integration. You know, there was yeah, a, openness. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was more of a uh, it was more of a amalgamation of those of those three different cultures coming together. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's one thing that I wish would have happened here because I think if it started out that way from the outset, then race relations today might be better than what they have been the past hundred fifty years or, or mm. whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, well, I'm just—I'm going to yeah. lay that whole blame right on the Bible. And oh no, you can't! I'm, I'm just I'm oh, going no, to. no, 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 yes, because it's religious freedom. <laughs> well, no, it's religious freedom. Well, no, but people believe the Bible the way they want to. But I know. But I just think no, because I think it's beliefs, it's belief systems, and everybody interprets the Bible differently. And everybody, so you've got to think. No, it's been around in different cultures all the time. So. It is about, I mean, it was the purest that came here, right? So, so there we go. There, that's ultimate purity, and we can't do this or that, right? And I think we're still kind of fighting this, right, Mike? In a way, this country. What? Well, well, you know, ah, this is so then and now. We're yeah, still going to get in trouble. We're so going to all get emails on this show. Well, uh, no, but, I, I, I won't. I won't attribute it to. Uh, I really won't attribute it to Christendom. Um, I'll just attribute it to differences in cultures, um, you know, and, and uh, there there are a lot of different cultural nuances. But, uh, you know, I just think that in a broader sense that, you know, it, what we see happening in North America and South America was just a uh, a smaller um, piece of, uh, you know, broad story arc in humanity of different races not getting along with other races because it happened elsewhere in the world. You know, you had the. Uh, you know, you had the Japanese who were slapping around the Chinese forever in a day. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you had the Zulus right. and the Bantus and, uh, yeah. you know, they were going at it like cats and dogs and the Arabs and the Persians have hated yeah. each other since, you know, since well, the beginning everybody's of been fighting each other. Yeah. Everybody's fighting everybody over territory and food source yeah. and, and water. And I want, I want to ask this, Mike, because this is what's interesting. In I think when you're in situations together, that all of that crap goes out the window. So when yeah. you're in battle, uh-huh. if you're, because I mean, let's look at the battles mm-hmm. that have happened in this country. Look at world war two, yeah. Navajo code talkers come in, mm-hmm. look at That's the right. battle of new Orleans. You know, I love mm-hmm. that battle, right? Yeah. So here comes the Indians mm-hmm. from Kentucky and Tennessee to come and help who Andrew Bloody Jackson. I'm sorry, right. I've been hanging out with Scottish and British people, but I'm going to say Andrew Bloody Jackson of all people. And look, he did something positive. Like he saved New Orleans. His his tactics did with the help of the people that you would least expect got together. Right. So it's kind of this interesting thing. And I think was it 
Like if you look at the 4th of July, uh, or not the 4th of July, the Revolutionary War, hey, screw you mm. to the British that don't understand where we're going. So it was like the British were fighting the British, really, when, yeah. when they came here. Okay, yeah. now later, here comes the battle. We have 1812. Wasn't the Battle of New Orleans kind of like a subsidiary of that? Like, where am I on, on, on the lineage of? Because the Battle of New Orleans was was really kind of a British thing, wasn't it? They were trying to take yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh. I mean, the War of 1812, I mean, it, it, if you look at it in the broader context, it's really kind of a uh, an adjunct that grows out of the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, I mean, if we take if we take the end of the Revolutionary War to be not you could say 1781 with the final British defeat, but when they actually recognize the independence of the U S in 1783. And if we just fast forward that to, you know, just on the cusp of 30 years later with the war of 1812, you know, it's really a carryover of that hostility and uh, building tensions between the two countries who had never really gotten over the fight Mm. in, in a matter of speaking. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you had, you had, um, the, you had you, you had a uh, you had British harassment of American merchant ships on the high seas. You, know, mm-hmm. you had uh, you you had then impressing American merchant sailors into the Royal Navy, and uh, you know you had uh, you had a you had a lot of um, you had a lot of um, I guess you can call it uh, half espionage and uh, half have sabotage, you know, with yeah. uh, them trying mm-hmm. to, you know, with them trying to um, organize uh, raids and recon missions along the American frontier from Canada. So I think what it all boiled down to was just uh, like, hey, we don't really feel like this fight's over. We still feel like we have uh, raw emotions on either side. So let's finish this once and for all. And, you know, when you go forward to the Battle of New Orleans, when the British had their final defeat there, I think that was really a sobering point for both sides to say, was this conflict really necessary to begin with? Didn't, shouldn't we have buried the hatchet back in 1783? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, oh. you know, and the, uh, the, the, the downstream effects that you see from that conflict are that, uh, you know, that, uh, well, one, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the captured or impressed American assets that were taken on the high seas were returned and not only that, you really had um, you had a remarkable healing process to the point where the British became and are still to this day our most reliable ally anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and those ties of friendship carried over and, uh, you know, were strengthened, I think, even more in the aftermath of World War One and especially World War Two, because for as much as they love to say, oh, you know, the bloody Yanks, they're they're overpaid, oversexed and over here. <laughs> Yanks. No, there we go. They, yeah, they, uh, they yeah, they, they all know uh, they all know pretty much beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, hey, thank you, America, yeah. for coming into the war, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, being the reason why we are not currently speaking German in, in, you know, in the city mm-hmm. of London. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, we do have the same ideals, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. that's a base, the cornerstone of who we are. We have the same ideals, even though we don't always get along on everything. We still have that cornerstone of the same ideals. Right. So, oh. would, you know, and I, I think there's, you know, when you talk about Germany and different countries in Europe, I think they also had those same ideals, but they just didn't have what they needed at the right time to get to where we are now. Now they are, but they, you know, I just think it was a hard, a hard lesson to learn. It's, it was, uh, it's, it's, you know, when you when you look at dictatorships and and we came very close to it in this country several times. And we need to guard it yeah. and not be stupid and lazy about it. We need to always understand who our politicians are, where they come from and what their real purpose but is. I think- and, 
Well, no, this, we really need to be. But vigilant. we're at a point, Nancy. Look, look at Sorry. look. This is, I think, the 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 beauty of this show today. What we're talking about is looking at what you know the Declaration of Independence and the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence put their lives on the line. Mm-hmm. When we look at now what's going on in our country, it's a little bit different. I'm just saying it is. Uh, it's a night and day thing. However, in between that time, there's been so many people that really have put their life on the line in wars and battles. Absolutely. And I think, I think I would love to see, you know, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, look at our country right now and go, Hey boys, girls, let's like fix a little. And I, I think they'd want to fix things. And also see that there's a lot of freedom too. You know, I, I think they'd they'd be interested in the cars. I think mm-hmm. <laughs> some of that stuff. But but uh, Mike, this is where I'm going too. The Revolutionary War really was a huge deal because it was un it was new territory, right? Like World War One was new territory, and right. you've got to think about the soldiers here in this country, even England, right? World War II, then going Korean War, Vietnam. Do you think that the military looked back at the Revolutionary War for examples of how to fight and how not to also? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, um, as a matter of fact, when I think back on my own military education, you know, when I was a cadet and also when I was a young officer, um, a lot of the a lot of the texts that we were required to read and a lot of the examples that we drew lessons from were all things that we could trace in some form or fashion back to the Prussian military thought and uh, mm. you know how the um, you know and how uh, how a lot of the how a lot of those European principles of war that were brought to America uh, c- c- courtesy of c- courtesy of leaders like, on Steuben um, were, you know, were, um, were part and parcel to how we formed our own ways of military thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I can only cite him as just one example. You know, one of the, uh, one of the texts that uh, was required reading for me at at least a few points in my military education was On War, which was by von Clausewitz. So you see a lot of these, uh, you see a lot of these Eurocentric, um, uh, pieces of military thinking that have influenced mm. our own way of, you know, how, how we prosecute wars. And, mm. you know, not only that, uh, I think of a lot of the uh, tactical examples that we studied um, in any number of classes I took, like the Battle of Saratoga, uh, for instance, or the Battle of Cowpens or the Battle of Yorktown. And uh, we use those as, uh, as case studies to develop these broader concepts of what we call mission command of, you know, mm. how being flexible and being adaptable and being able to push the power down and essentially compartmentalize different structures of the rank to, you know, empower the tactical leaders who are closest to the action and how that, as opposed to a top heavy bureaucratic um, style of battle, uh, style of battlefield Mm -hmm. management will always uh, produce victory in whatever conflict you're in. Wow, because that gets leads us to the psychology of war, mm-hmm. really. So we have to look at the psychology. What you know, just because someone attacks you doesn't mean you just blow up right there. Emotional intel- intelligence comes into this, right? Wow, you know, we we forget that, you know, because <laughs> you know when you see what's going on, you just go, "Why can't we just blow up Russia right now?" You know, <laughs> you know, the, well, today we're that easy. Know, yeah, right. But that's not the smart thing <laughs> but, to do. And there's you know, people there, by the way. So, you know, so it's like we can't just do that. But we want to go. Okay, can we just push this button? But I'm just saying, you know, regular people like us just want to sit and go. Okay, why can't we just do this? But there's all of these, and I think we, as a society, we don't understand all the little steps that it takes to really do a good. We're taking you down. And a lot of times it's, you know, we get impatient because like back then we didn't have TV. We didn't have the internet. 
We didn't have phones. We didn't have fax machines. We didn't have any of that, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. think about the independence, I mean, people are riding horses, you know, across territory in the cold, you know, to, to get messages across. So you've got to think back in the Revolutionary War, we didn't have what we have today. And the patience to actually make something happen while you're hot-headed, right? Yeah. You know what I mean, Mike? That That's something... That's got to be a very, um, I think that's what, what's so great about the people you've written in your books. They are able to, it's, it's emotional because you're, you're, there's fear, there's anger, there's like, just get it done. And at this, at the same time, you have to have this balance and then just, oh, now we're going to kick ass real sudden, you know, and patience. And I think that's a really when you're in it, you kind of get it maybe, but then when you're depending, you know, where you are in the fight and then you've got your leadership and depending on them too. But then like now here we are as the peanut gallery going, this is what should happen when we're not actually in the war. You know what I mean, Mike? Does that make sense? Like, yeah. So this is why I love this conversation because you got to look back at the revolutionary war. Like did the town, did the townspeople know what was going on? Like, you know what I mean? It's pretty much. Yeah, but I mean, right there. But it's like you had to have real communication that put your life on the line. If you went to tell your neighbor what was going on, you could be, you know, it's just a different thing. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have phones. Mm -hmm. And in war, as as we all know, your internet could go out, and you won't have Wi-Fi. You won't. We know from being in wildfires, like you don't have gas. You know that's why (laughs) we always keep our gas tank full. You never know what can go down and you don't get gas, you know? Right. So I just think it's it's really interesting when you think about what they went through way back when. And we look at weather extremes and everything and they still went through them and they didn't have what we had. They didn't have central heating and air conditioning. And, you know, it's like go back to what those guys went through and the women yeah. with the kids going through it. Yeah. You know, so look at your people that you've written through, written all these stories, right? Um, mm-hmm. Hal Moore, uh, Volkman, all these guys, you know, Combat Diaries, your latest book. Yeah. Any of them stand, like when you look at the history of the Revolutionary War and where we got to Independence Day, mm-hmm. any of them kind of, do you think, lean to that? Like, would you say they they watched what happened in the Revolutionary War and, and had that same chutzpah of go for it? I think all of them did, yeah. actually. I'm oh, just saying yeah. they all did. Yeah. I mean, we could be yeah. here for 10 days, but you know, right. talking yeah. about them all, you've only got like 21 books, you know. But um, <laughs> anybody stand out for you that would you who would you place in the Revolutionary War of that? You know, I, it would probably have to be Russ Volkman and Don Blackburn, um, you know, because when I take a look at the situation that they had to deal with, uh, you know, it was one where it seemed to be the only reliable source of information that you could get was via, via the, the rumor mill. And, uh, you know, both men were in a situation where uh, they were caught behind enemy lines and they were members of an army that had effectively that had effectively surrendered to the Japanese in the Philippines and they were left with a uh, they were left with an existential quandary for lack of a better term to say okay well do i obey the order to surrender even though i don't think it's a good one and take my chances in a Japanese POW camp or do i disobey the order and carry on to resist the enemy by other means. And uh, they chose the latter. And, uh, you know, what what ensued was essentially a a, a three and a half year game of cat and mouse as they were trying to figure out uh, how are we going to carry on a guerrilla war against the Japanese when we're both outnumbered, at least right now, uh, we're outgunned. And we, uh, we have what could very easily be an intimidated population that we're going to uh, have to uh, not only gain their trust, but convince them that Uncle Sam has not abandoned the Philippine Islands. So, you know, for, with all those unknown variables going into the equation, 
you know, I, and I, when I think back to, uh, you know, the environment that our revolutionary forefathers were in, I'd right. say, yeah, you know, these guys are, you know, these guys are of the uh, same cloth of the same mindset, uh, facing similar variables, but they're just in different parts of the timeline. And uh, yeah, for, and I think it was nothing short of a miracle that uh, both the forefathers, you know, the founding fathers of the country and uh, guys like Don Blackburn and Russ Volkman were able to, uh, you know, tackle those, all those unknowns, take the bull by the horns and, you know, invent new concepts and ideas as they went along and, you know, and facilitate the destruction of the enemy in the course of doing that. It's amazing when you think about it, you know, like, and then now, like then World War One, World War Two, you know, you're talking about more Vietnam, the Korean War. And then you've got to think even the first world war that had mm-hmm. to be scary as hell. Like, oh, yeah. what the hell? The world's on fire. Like, what are we going to do? Like, how? Do, and then all of a sudden now we have airplanes going out. <clears throat> you know, it, that's that's it's it's amazing how warfare has changed. Um, the world, the World War One and World War Two to me changed everything. You know, revolutionary war here definitely a huge and different thing but it's also very similar to me of other countries with it was a civil war really if yeah. you think about it you know um and so i kind of feel like akin to that when living in different countries like africa and stuff that kind of stuff kind of happened a lot and still does and you know brazil south america all that but um the world war one and two i still think is something we have to realize you know the more we have animosity we could end up back there and i i just i just keep going like god you look at the revolutionary war some positives came out of it but do we have to keep doing this mike (laughs) you know combat diaries um your your latest book which you know you're going to be doing a lot of these right is this going to be like a full-on series oh yeah 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 good good because I mean, these are stories of people doing, you know, just amazing things. And the overcoming of fear, you're always thrown in a different situation in, in military life. And um, what w- who would you say when you look at Combat Diaries, any of their stories resonate with the Revolutionary War? I mean, Combat Diaries, this one is World War II, Greatest Generation, yeah. which is so important. We're, we're really getting it now this year about... Uh, our greatest generation leaving us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Um, yeah. I, I think all of them in some form or fashion, uh, you know, have ideals and attitudes and actions that would tie back into that revolutionary spirit. But if I had to narrow it down to at least one or two and uh, you know, you know, the one that really stands out in my mind as of right now is going to be Abus Daggett. And, uh, and for those who have not read the book, uh, she was the, um, she was the lady that we featured in, um, in the chapter about the army nurse who was probably the closest thing to, uh, combat that a female mm-hmm. soldier could get at the time. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I use that as an example because, just given the construct of the military at the time, most females who served in the military, they were assigned to the segregated female um, components of that military branch. You had the wax in the army, you had the waves who were in the Navy, you had the uh, wasps who were part of the army air forces at the time. And, uh, you know, that's typically, that was typically the only place that a lady could serve unless she was a nurse because if you were a nurse, you were a commissioned officer and you were considered part of the regular army. Now, uh, you know, being that that was not a combat arms specialty per se, you were always in close proximity to the front lines. And, uh, you know, and when you read the story of Avis Daggett, you know, you, you see these uh, young nurses who were, you know, very patriotic, uh, very upstanding young ladies who were, you know, storming the beaches of Anzio under enemy fire, you know, just, you know, uh, just trying to find cover and, you know, say, okay, well, gosh, you know, I'm going to hide behind this rock wall. 
grenades are going off and I'm going to try to find a place where we can put up a field hospital. Uh, you know, so I, I think just given the fact that there was um, there was not an expectation of women being in combat that, you know, you had uh, nurses who were, you know, who were essentially landing under enemy fire that kind of dovetails into that revolutionary spirit of, Hey, I'm working outside of the, uh, you know, of the organizational structure that has been set before me. So that that's really one that stands out uh, for me. And then another one would have to be the uh, story of Tom Stafford, because here was a guy who quite literally was a jack of all trades. And, uh, you know, cause he, cause he, when he enlisted in the army, he enlisted as a quartermaster, which means that he was a supply specialist. Mm-hmm. And then right before the invasion of Normandy, he, uh, he volunteers to be a combat engineer. Uh, you know, then he, then he's a combat engineer for, you know, however, however many months it was that he was there after the, uh, after the D-Day invasion. Then he becomes a rifleman, you know, so he's a rank and file infantryman fighting on the front lines there in uh, France and Germany. And uh, then from a rifleman, he gets picked up with a battlefield commission to be a Johnny on the spot officer. And uh, that precipitates him making the military his entire career. So he goes through all of those different specialties and uh, has to get what is probably the most uh, chaotic on the job training of uh, any, any line of work I can imagine, because, you know, he's having to learn these new trades while he's effectively being shot at, (laughs) you know, where it is quite literally a life and death situation. So, you know, there again, you have an example of someone who's being thrust into a new situation and they're having to think outside the box and think outside the, uh, the uh, organizational framework that they have been trained to see the world through. And uh, yeah, that, that mm. right there is it's revolutionary. revolutionary, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the whole point of revolutionary, right? It's like revolting, right? We're revolting yeah. against something, but at the same time, it's something that really makes a big change. And I think yeah. all these wars made a huge change, right? Around mm-hmm. the world. And when you think about our soldiers here in this country going off and fighting and and from England to, you know, I got to give them, you know, because that's part of our heritage of what we're talking about for 4th of July. But um, really it, the revolutionary war changed things and made us all look and, and understand things in different ways. Like you could do it. It was empowering in one way. You know, if you look at it that way, it's empowering. And for people going off to world war one world war two i mean world war one they had world war one they had to really look back at revolutionary war and you know war of 1812 and all of that the you know all those battles and the civil war we can't leave that out the civil war is a huge part of that like in this country having to go through that right after the revolutionary war here comes the civil war and um Talk about women in the Civil War, you know, getting mm-hmm. out there and, and doing so much. It's it's amazing. People putting their life on the line. And, you know, we've got to have more respect. And, you know, when we talk about Independence Day, it, it goes from then to now of those who are still fighting. And and look at we're, we're establishing um, even with what's going on in Ukraine. We're we're getting involved now. Right, Mike? We're seeing that happen. We're getting more involved as our country. So um, it's never ending. We did say we would fight for independence and freedom for all. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. So, you know, but in a slow way, right? It's a slow way. When we start setting up bases, that's kind of the beginning, right? Um, We'll set up a base here and, and then later it'll become a national park. What happens? I'm serious. But that's the thing, so that we can go and see what happened. And we have national park units across this country and, and then around the world. Guam, you know, it's just, you know, there's there's all these places. We have parks that you wouldn't imagine. And it's because of wars and having well, that spot for America. We're is, remembering the people who fought. Exactly. And exactly. Respecting. Yeah. And I think it's, that's what's so, I don't know. It's it's just, it always just blows my mind. Mike, thank you so much as always. 
We can't wait for oh, next time. You. We're going to talk about leadership, right? Sure. Leadership excellence. Yes. Yes, a new series. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the heroes that you've written about and talk about leadership and how to really, you know, when life gets you down, when things get into that crunch, how we can jump out of it. Like, really, believe in yourself and go for it and not, you know, shirk it off. Because I think even what we've talked about today is about that. Uh, when things get sour, you don't just cower. Ooh, yeah. I wrote that Ooh. right now. Like, <laughs> not now, brown cow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Everyone, again, MikeGuardia.com is a website to go to. He's on our show every first Monday. This time it was the 4th of July, so we had to do that. And uh, keep up with him on Amazon, too. Go check out all his books and go buy every single one of them. And we're going to close the show with a song called Colors of the USA. This is by Doreen Taylor. You can go to DoreenTaylorMusic.com. And I had to tie that in because it's also about our national parks are about history. So when we protect nature and the land, a lot of times battles have actually been fought on those pieces of land. And so it's a place to go and relax in nature, but it's also a place to go and reconnect with those who fought uh, in the battles across this country. And that's what her music is about. We have over 420 national park units in this country, and three quarters of them are about history. So check them out. Uh, Go to nps.gov for that. And here it is, Colors of the USA. And thank you so much, Mike. You take care. All righty, Lisa, Nancy, you, you gals do the same and always a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. No, it's our Come!